Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Yeah, what is it? Aye, Captain. I be talking to the crew and I tells them, Top men, your handling of the sheets to be lubbery and unnavy-like. Until the signal calls, you're to spill the wind from our sails. There'll be no chance for reload. So gun captains, that gives you one shot from the larboard battery. One shot only. You'll fire for her main mast. Look, Putterman, we've been over this. You're on a container ship. All right. Carrying blubber whale and breadfruit to London town. Aye, sir. No, we're carrying iPhones, flat screen TVs, and Nike running shoes, you moron. We'll rent and we'll roar like true ship containers. We'll rent and we'll roar on deck and below. Until we see bottom inside the two sunkers. Stop! I said yesterday, no shanties. How about grog, sir? No, Grog. Look, Putterman, I get that you've watched a lot of movies, but this is totally different. We're basically in a huge building that just happens to be moving. The connection to the sea is incidental. But there do be pirates, Captain. Yes. Maybe. Pirates. And we do fight them with pistol and cutlass. No, we go into a heavily reinforced panic room and kind of wait them out. Would you care to hear a panic room, Chanty? No, look, just... Go over there and don't say anything or do anything for the next 2,000 miles, all right? And if you get bored, you can listen to this show, which is about ships like this and also about all the things down in the ocean, which you are never going to be anywhere close to. And now his fraternity name was Little Mermaid, Colin McEnroe. Yes, we were doing a show about the sea, uh, and we're going to look at it a couple of different ways here. Uh, a little bit later, you'll be hearing about the extreme life of the sea, the creatures that do live in the sea and live under extraordinary circumstances and with uh, extraordinary physical burdens that they, um, through their biology, overcome. We'll also be talking about the garbage patch that's out there. You've probably heard about that, the plastic ocean. Uh, and But before we do that, and, and this is sort of something that we've been talking about for, let's see, about three months in some ways, and it, it kind of started uh, with... Um, not the movie Captain Phillips, but the movie All is Lost. In the movie All is Lost, Robert Redford plays uh, this sailor, sort of a pleasure sailor, but he's out on some long extended uh, ocean voyage by himself in a sailboat, and he awakens at the beginning of the movie to discover that the hull of his boat is, or the side of his boat is, has been pierced by one of these enormous rectangular containers uh, that must have fallen off one of these gigantic container vessels. Um, and, and now it's in the process of sinking him and killing him, and meanwhile... Uh, kind of mockingly children's sneakers are spreading out across the ocean. That turns out to have been what uh, is in them and what is threatening him now with death is an enormous load of children's sneakers. And later in the movie, and this is a little bit of a spoiler, but uh, one of these huge uh, vessels goes by him uh, and he's in distress at this point. But either it can't see him because these things are just enormous, as you'll hear, uh, or it can't stop. And we got we are actually all standing in the, in the lobby of the movie theater talking to James Hadley, who's kind of our 
re- uh, resource about everything. And we were interested in that whole question. Well, could it stop? I mean, how 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 many miles would it have to go before something that big could stop? Is it even allowed to stop under current anti-piracy rules and stuff like that? Even if you saw somebody floating around in a life raft and you were the captain of one of these enormous things, would you even be allowed to stop? And we suddenly realized we just didn't really know anything about all this stuff. But uh, we, we very quickly, and James was the one who did it, he found this book called 90% of Everything, Inside Shipping, the invisible industry that puts clothes on your back, gas in your car, food on your plate, and really look around you right now, wherever it is that you're sitting. If you've got an iPhone or if there's a, a computer monitor sitting sitting near you and there's clothes on your back and sneakers on your feet and almost all of it uh, came this way, hence the title. Uh, and the author, Rose George, is uh, joining us right now from BBC in Leeds, Yorkshire. Uh, she's going to tell us even more about this. So first of all, welcome to our show. Thank you. And you decided to look into this a number of different ways. But one of the things that you did was enlist on a very, very long voyage on one of these enormous ships. Uh, Before we get to the voyage, give us a sense of the dimension of these boats. I I hear three football fields long, which is something that would be meaningful, I guess, to us Americans. But I mean, how big a boat is this? Well, for a start, if you um, if you tell a seafarer that they've gone to sea on a boat, they're not going to be very happy with you, I'm afraid. All right, so I've already <laughs> they, made a mistake. They, yeah, it's a ship. Um, the uh, so my ship was actually a medium-sized ship. It was um, uh, it could carry seven thousand containers, and it was th- nearly three hundred meters long. So it's about three to four soccer pitches. I'm not sorry. I'm not sure how long your football <laughs> pitches are. Um, but it, for, to me, it was enormous. You know, standing on the gangway, waiting to embark, it was just the hugest thing I was ever going to encounter. But it was actually a pretty average size ship. And how far did you go on this ship? I traveled for about nine and a half thousand nautical miles from um, Felixstowe in southern uh, south coast, uh, sorry, um, on the east coast of England Mm -hmm. to Singapore through uh, the Indian Ocean, so through pirate waters, um, going through the Suez Canal, um, sort of skirting down past India, calling at Sri Lanka and then down the Malacca Straits into Singapore. And uh, what was your ship carrying? I have no idea. Neither did anyone on board. Um, it was carrying, I can tell you, it was carrying 7,000 containers. Mm-hmm. Um, I did uh, I did ask, um, I was traveling on um, a ship owned by Maersk, which is the biggest yeah. container shipping line in the world, and I believe starred in All Is Lost. It was a Maersk ship, I think. Yes. Um, uh, and I did ask them, I just, as, as to satisfy my curiosity, I asked them to tell me what was in 12 containers. And it was mostly three or four of them were personal effects of people obviously moving to Asia. Um, there was some baked beans, there was some paint, there was some, you know, there was, a, there was a variety of things. I mean, we could, what we could do, because there was no manifest on board, because if if there'd been a manifest, it would have been the size of several Bibles and no one would have had time to go through it anyway. So th- there isn't a manifest kept on board. It's generally kept in shoreside offices. Um, but what I did do was go through the hazardous materials, which are they are listed on board, so that they, if anything happens, they know how to put out fires or something. So it was quite funny to go through those and guess what was in them because they're only listed by chemicals. So we guessed that there were airbags, so there may have been cars. We guessed that there was paint stripper. We guessed all sorts of things. So that 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 kept us occupied for an evening or two. 
Um, Obviously, your title uh, tells part of the story of your book, 90% of Everything. Um, And that really is the case, right? I mean, um, so much of everything that touches our lives, the physical stuff of our lives, for one reason or another, have to be moved around in this manner. Yeah, 90% of world trade travels by sea. And I think that in certainly in the UK, which is, even though it's a maritime nation, and I think probably in the US, I think there's a general perception amongst the general public that probably if people think about it, then probably a lot goes by air. But in fact, the only things that go by air, because it's so expensive and because planes are so small compared to these massive ships, are um, mistakes and things that are urgent and things like haute couture, which are sent by air. I think iPhones do actually go by air. I think they, I don't think they do go by ship. But um, otherwise, pretty much everything... Uh, that we need, including oil, gas, even water is shipped by ship. So pretty much everything is shipped by ship. Is it? I mean, there's something fundamentally inefficient sounding about baked beans being placed in some huge cargo container and then placed on some big boat that's traveling 9,000 miles. I mean, is this a good way to move things around? Yeah, it's it's extremely cheap. It's the reason that we can have globalization is because we have containerization. Because before that, if you to to transport anything, it would cost you nearly a quarter of the cost of anything to get that thing that you were transporting to a port. So your profits would be eaten into immediately. Once containerization was standardized by um, a U.S. shipping guy called Malcolm McLean. Um, so it was. It, think of it like a, a Ford production line. So everything was standardized. Suddenly there was this box that could be just lifted off a ship, put onto a truck, put onto a train, bam, and off it went. So costs um, decreased dramatically. And suddenly, I mean, these days, depending on what the economy is doing, but um, there's a fact that really astonishes people that, that, that I put in the book, which is that, um, for example, Scottish cod is sent to China to be processed. Um, to be filleted and then sent back and to be sold in Scottish shops. And the same thing happens to Monterey shrimp and all sorts of items. It's incredibly cheap uh, cheap to, to ship something by container. Be- because of economies of scale. I mean, it because seems crazy. Yeah, it seems crazy. And it seems, I mean, I guess when we say, is this a good way to do things, that's a vast philosophical conversation about whether it makes sense to make and do things close to home or whether it makes sense to lower the price of things by having uh, the labor and the manufacturing concentrated in countries where labor is cheaper. I mean, this is just a, it's a conversation really about our way of life, which is supported by the industry that, that you're writing about. It is. It's a conversation about globalization, about outsourcing, about um, labor markets. It's a conversation. It's a conversation about everything. It's a conversation about hundred percent of everything. Um, but it, I mean, shipping. It, it is efficient, and it, it. We would not be able. The, the modern economy would not be able to function without it. There's. There's just no way. Um, and yeah, it's a bell that cannot be unrung. Um, so uh, given that, given that it's it's with us and it's here to stay, it does make sense to know more about it. And it seems as though it's something that most of us, I mean, until this year, in which I watched both Captain Phillips and All is Lost and, and thought a little bit more about all this stuff, I'd given this whole thing precious little thought. And I think I'm not that unusual. In fact, there's even a word for it, right? Sea blindness. Yes, that's something that the, um, the the head of the Admiralty in the UK um, talks about quite a lot, that that we have sea blindness, that we don't really see the sea anymore. Or if we do, we just see it somewhere to go on holiday to a beach. But generally what we do is fly over it. And because we don't travel by liner anymore, and uh, we generally fly places if we're going any great distance. Um, and so it's not seen as a place of industry or work, and I think it's become slightly shoved out of our minds. 
And I think Captain Phillips and, and All Is Lost have done a really good thing in bringing it back into prominence. And finally, people are thinking, goodness, you know, people are working on these ships every single day, every single night. I mean, there are 1.25 million seafarers doing their job on the most dangerous element on the planet, the most dangerous place on the planet, which is the ocean. Um, I mean, your opening segment, um, which I, I very much like the thought of a panic room shanty, by the way. <laughs> but um, the opening segment said, you know, the sea is very removed from these ships, but that's not true. That It's not, because however safe a ship, however big they are, however safe it is, and ships are a lot safer now, you're still very, uh, you, you are absolutely not um, secure. You can't be because you're on the ocean and there's no unsinkable ship. Um, that's a great point. We're talking to Rose George uh, right now. Her book is 90% of everything. This is about the, these this incredible shipping industry. Her other books, we're going to have Rose George back as soon as possible because one of her other books is The Big Necessity, which is about basically pee and poop. We really want to do this show. We've been looking for a way to do this show. We didn't know your book existed, so we're uh, we're thrilled with that. We want to come back and talk about the world of elimination. Um, and we'll probably do a show about whatever the next book is that you write. We'll find out about that. But um, right now we're talking about these container boats. So these container ships, these container uh, vessels, they they there's a lot on them, as you say, 7,000 containers, but not a lot of people, right? It doesn't take that many people to, to do what it has to do, which is to go from place A to place B. No, I mean, when I, I, I got on board and I was... Um the, the, the ship was very people on the ship were very busy because we were in port and we had to unload containers there was a lot going on so but I, I was just astonished by how empty the ship seemed there was I was rattling around the corridors and I, I just saw hardly anybody until until it was dinner time and then I found out that there were there were 22 people on board and that's more than they usually are in fact the, there's something called a safe manning certificate which is the minimum number of people on board that you should have on board and that was 13 or 15 15 um so normally the crew would have been 19 people. Now, if you go on a warship, which I did also later on, um, so that was a smaller ship, it was a frigate, and there were a 1,000 people on board. And mm. if you go on a cruise ship, obviously, you know, you, you have a 1,000 crew, and that's not even starting with the passengers. So, yes, you have these enormous ships, but they're, they're very, um, they're pretty lonely, there's, yeah, because there's hardly anyone on board. Not many people, and, and one's time of service is long, right? These, these are long trips, and the contract you sign uh, is for a, a long period of service. If you're non-officers, generally um, sign longer contracts than officers. So, so on my ship, the crew, um, so the non-officers, uh, they'd usually sign nine, ten-month contracts because they they had to then go back to the Philippines. They were all Filipino, um, and find another contract. They didn't have. They weren't secured to the ship. They weren't linked to the ship. They were linked to a manning agency that then. They had to go and scrabble for another job. The officers, the captain was on a two-month, two-month on, two-month off contract. And um, the the senior officers were on sort of three, three to four-month contracts. You know, you mentioned uh, the Filipino crew. And this is an interesting thing about these ships is that, you know, we think about a ship as being from somewhere. Um, with these ships, it's an interesting and complicated question, right? The, the crew is often Filipino or South Asian, uh, and the um, the flag uh, that it flies could be what they call a flag of convenience, which we'll get you to talk a little bit about. The boat could the ship could be owned by Americans, but registered someplace else, right? I mean, these are sort of weird a national uh, enterprises. Yeah, a-national, supranational, meta-national, <laughs> whatever we want to call them. They are extremely mobile 
objects, they're moving objects, but they're mobile in their identity as well. So, for example, my ship, Kendall, it did fly a British flag, which is pretty unusual, because like the US, the British fleet, the ocean-going fleet has on paper, has uh, diminished dramatically since the Second World War. The US now only has 100 ocean-going vessels. But there are hundreds of American ship owners who own ships, but all their ships are flagged to Panama, Liberia, the Bahamas, all these uh, open registries or flags of convenience. So that what that means, the reason that these flags are called flags of convenience is that they make life quite convenient for ship owners and operators. So they are allowed to employ anybody they like. So in practice, um, the average ship, I mean, on my ship, there were eight or nine nationalities, and that's pretty common. And it's it's quite unusual to find a totally homogenous crew um, on a on a ship um, with a flag that actually has anything to do with where the owner comes from. So these a-national or pan-national uh, ships, I mean, the... The other convenience is you can you don't have to necessarily follow any country's set of rules. And if something goes wrong, and we're going to talk in the next segment more about uh, environmental uh, consequences. But if anything goes wrong, it's it's less clear who's going to be held accountable and by what court. Yes, well, th- there is no uh, over, there's no equivalent of, for example, the war crimes court. There's no equivalent for shipping crime. There's no equivalent for. Um, it's very difficult. There is an international law of the sea, but because of the nature of ships, it can it can be if the owner or anyone in the ownership structure chooses to make life difficult for investigators trying to identify them, it can be quite easy to slip away from scrutiny. And that is a problem. Um, you know, obviously, one of the issues here, and you've kind of alluded to it already, is just monotony. That uh, to keep from going crazy, you do things like inspect the uh, the list of hazardous things on the boat and and just try to find things to do. This, these are long trips without lots of stimulation. The the other side of that, obviously, is that, uh, as you have also said, this is not the safest place in the world to be. Uh, things can go wrong at sea, and there really are pirates. I mean, we we know from Captain Phillips, there really are pirates. How how big, how large did that particular threat loom in the minds uh, of the people on your trip? Well, they, um, they're they a tough bunch, and um, I don't think they were going to admit to a woman that they were scared. Um, <laughs> but when we did reach the bottom of, we traveled a, a day south when we got out of the Suez Canal, and then we ended up in the Gulf of Aden. And that was thought, that was called the high risk area, the danger zone. And at that point, um, the ship did change. It changed physically in that all the um, ports and windows were were immediately blacked out with cardboard and blinds snapped into place. And it, the atmosphere changed as well. And even though they wouldn't admit to it, admit to it there was a real atmosphere of tension. Um, and I was scared. I was honestly scared. I mean, to that at that point, I'd been quite cavalier about it and thinking, oh, yeah, it's fine going through pirate waters. And our ship was um, thought to be too big to be a threat because the side of the ship was too high for pirates to easily grapple up with a ladder. But even so, pirates evolve and, and a, a ship was taken hostage on exactly the same route we were traveling through 24 hours earlier. So they were pretty. it was a nerve-wracking week. And when you think that seafarers were going through that pr- every six weeks or so, that that must put quite a lot of strain on them, and uh, and I, although they are a tough bunch and and they're, they're you know hardworking guys and and they're they're doing a, a good job at sea and they're proud of what they do, but I think it, it must have been an intolerable pressure. And I'm I'm using the past tense because at the moment, thankfully, um, Somali piracy is being contained, but that's definitely not a, an indefinite solution. 
Um, one of the things that becomes clear is, I mean, if you were to ask me how many uh, seafarers or anybody else were, were uh, taken hostage uh, through this process in any given year, I, I would pick a, a fairly low number. Uh, the real number, I gather, is much larger. Well, when I went to sea in 2010, there were about 550 seafarers being held hostage, um, which is an astonishing number. And, mm. and as, as you say, I think most people just didn't know that. When I would ask my friends, how many hostages do you think there are? They'd say a dozen, maybe 20. But it was, it was hundreds. And the, and the brutality um, increased over the years. So let's say Somali piracy really raged for about 10 years. It's been contained for a couple of years now, but when it was really at its height, I mean, the, it, the brutality was increasing year on year. There was torture, people were beaten up. Um, a hostage I interviewed was held, and his captain was held in the freezer for a day in his underpants. Really, really terrible um, conditions. So when I when I see pirates or piracy not really being taken seriously or just being seen as a kind of cartoon thing, particularly in, in relation to Somali pirates, I, d I do get quite angry because they're criminals and they treated hostages appallingly and their hostages had done nothing wrong. All they'd been doing was their job. We're talking to Rose George right now. We're going to take a little break. Uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to add a different voice to the conversation, talk a little bit about uh, the uh, the life that's in the sea. But we also want to talk more to Rose towards the end of that segment, too, about the, the environmental implications of this way of moving goods around, which are substantial. All right, we'll be back. We joined the Navy to do or die, but we didn't do, and we didn't die. We were much too busy looking at the ocean and the sky, and what did we see? We saw the sea. You know, a few years ago, we were doing a show about the search for extraterrestrial life, and we were talking to Paul Davies, who's one of the experts about this. And one of the things that he said, and it's in one of his books, is that uh, we get very fussed up about the idea of finding extraterrestrial life or that uh, that we'll find, e you know, even some microorganism that's not uh, born here on Earth. And, and, and we, with good reason, we get interested in, in that. On the other hand, we haven't really successfully cataloged everything that's here on Earth and that there are um, amazing organisms, mostly in the ocean, uh, that we don't know about. And some of the ones that we do know about, we don't understand very well. And um, you got me thinking. Anyway, uh, a good place to go if you're thinking that way is The Extreme Life of the Sea, a book by Stephen Palumbi uh, and Anthony Palumbi. Uh, we still have Rose George. We're going to come back to her because as we go along here, after we kind of sketch out some of the extremes of life uh, in, in the seas, in the oceans, we we're going to talk uh, quite a bit about what we are doing to that life and to that environment. Uh, Stephen Palumbi joins us now, though, uh, for a discussion of these um, organisms, these things that live there, ranging from very small to uh, extremely large, uh, and, and a lot of them are fairly amazing. First of all, welcome to the show. Hi, Colin. Uh, pleasure to be here. So your book's divided up into sections like, you know, deepest and, and oldest and coldest and hottest. I want to talk about hottest for a second because that's actually one of the things I think that Paul Davies brought up low those many years ago, that there are life forms that are living near these these vents in the ocean floor that are dispensing extreme temperatures. And these things are, are somehow or other choosing uh, to live there and are, are able to, sur to survive in a very extreme environment. Tell, give us a sample of one of those. 
Yeah, Colin, the the uh, the life down there is, is as you as you described, is almost like it's on another another planet. You you don't have to search hard to find something really odd and strange down down there in the ocean. It's it's full of it. And those creatures that you were talking about um, live near the cracks in the seafloor where superheated water comes comes boiling up. And actually, it's so far down the water doesn't boil; it can get above boiling. Temperatures and there's bacteria down there that can live at at 100 degrees um, centigrade and and above and and there's some animals down there too that make their lives around those those cracks and one one particular is a little worm it's called a Pompeii worm and um, it's only about an inch or so long its tail end lives at the the temperature of hot tea mm-hmm. but its head end uh, an inch away lives at the temperature of ice water which is the the normal temperature of the deep sea. So this this one critter lives across a huge range in temperatures, uh, just one inch from the head to the tail. Um, do, do you feel that we? I mean, to what degree do have we cataloged what's what's down there? I mean, not just in these extremely high temperatures, but um, were you left with the feeling that there were are a lot of things that are down there that we just don't know about? There are a lot of things down there that uh, that we just don't know about. Um, our book actually uh, has an easier job uh, because what we've been able to do is take the things that that we do know about and show how amazing they are and how they manage to thrive even under circumstances which we would find to be totally difficult to live in environmentally. They are amazing things, but they're, they're, most of them live within kind of a delicate balance too. I mean, even think about think about that worm. You know, it's not very big. One part of it's uh, exposed to extreme heat; the other to extreme cold. Um, we're we're not mucking around too much with the circumstances way down there, but we are mucking around a lot with um, our, our environment right now. Uh, part of your book is devoted to bioluminescence, and right now in Puerto Rico, they've had some problems with these bioluminescent bays that where they've had blackouts, and they're not even 100 percent sure they know why that's happening. Um, so we're going to talk as we go along here about that delicate balance for a lot of that life. But while we're on the subject of bioluminescence, uh, I, I guess I didn't, although I've been to the bays in Puerto Rico, I don't th- think I quite understood how remarkable this is. And there, some of these, at least one of the fish or one of the organisms that you wrote about is able to generate a kind of red light that it also can see. Uh, it actually sort of creates uh, its own version of, of night vision, right? Ah, that's exactly right. Because the uh, the deep sea is dark. There's very little light down there. Um, the light that is is what you what you refer to bioluminescence. But most bioluminescence, almost all of it, is um, blue and green in color. So if you're down in the deep sea, there's flashes of blue and green all all over the place. Uh, and organisms down there are tuned to be able to to see that. The trouble is if if you want to see to find your prey and you flash out a bunch of light in order to find prey, well, all your predators can see that too, and they come swarming in to attack you. So the night vision strategy is something that a fish called the uh, stoplight loose jaw um, has evolved, and they beam out red searchlights from uh, the base of their cheek, right by, right under their eyes, a little a little searchlight on either side. It beams out red lights that they can basically find their prey with. No other fish can see that red light, but their eyes have um, adaptations, a couple of mutations in the, the gene called opsin that makes their eyes be able to see. That means that they can see, uniquely see, the red light that, that they use. 
And one of the, uh, I mean, we're skipping around here and, and, and fast forwarding through a lot of stuff. This book covers all, all kinds of fascinating things. But um, we, we actually did a show about seahorses a few years ago, which I dimly remember. Uh, and one of the things I became vaguely aware of is that seahorses violate a lot of basic laws, <laughs> at least what we think of are our basic laws of biology, especially reproductive biology. Um, this, uh, in your book, I got an education about the clownfish, which I guess is the fish in Little Nemo, but there's stuff they don't tell you uh, in in Finding Nemo, um, including the fact that all clownfish are born male, and then they just start to change? No, that's right, Colin. They, <laughs> that's what they do. And, and there's reasons why Disney didn't cover that part of the, of the topic, but uh, that's what uh, clownfish do. Um, in, a, in an anemone that clownfish live in, the biggest fish in the anemone is a female, and she lays all the eggs. The next biggest fish uh, is, a, is a male, and he fertilizes all the eggs. And if the big female gets picked off by a predator um, or an or a over-inquisitive hypothesis testing marine biologist, then um, the next largest fish, the male, will grow a little bit and turn into a female. And then the next fish down in size, a smaller male, uh, grows a little bit and becomes the male that fertilizes the egg. So uh, there's always a pair in the anemone. They're always making eggs and fertilizing them. But who's the male and who's the female depends on their, their position in this size rank. When uh, when uh, Stephen Palumbi says grows a little bit uh, in the case of the male, the male, the thing that the fish that gets designated suddenly to become the, the fertilizing male basically grows testes uh, in in a short period of time. I guess that's the thing you, you thought Disney, although it would be great animation to show that. Uh, maybe one of the things Disney wanted didn't want to get into. <laughs> well, that's right, and so you know, in in that in that particular case, the the um, the father in uh, in Finding Nemo wouldn't have gone off uh, in search of uh, anybody. The, the, the other little fish, Nemo himself, wouldn't have gone off. In fact, they'd have just stayed in the, in the anemone, and, and uh, father would have grown a little bit and, and turned into the female of the house. You know, um, as we go along here, I'm going to bring Rose George back into the conversation. But in a way, uh, one of the things that links your two books is this notion of, of sea blindness or ocean blindness, that we, we don't really know that much about an ocean that we, another, uh, on the other hand, feel very free to exploit. And I, this was really driven home to me in the chapter that you wrote about uh, the age of things. So they find this um, 100-year-old harpoon uh, in a newly killed bowhead whale in the in the 1990s and suddenly realized that maybe these whales are a lot older than anybody thought. Um, but even more chillingly, the, a fish that I think is actually being fished right now for, for, for consumption, uh, this rockfish, uh, turns out to be have, have just a, a, um, a life cycle that was completely unanticipated by people and, and something that we started to fish for without even remotely understanding how it lives and how long it lives. That's exactly right, Colin. Uh, the the fish uh, that we talk about is called a a um, a, a rockfish, uh, a deep sea uh, fish off the coast of California here. And uh, much to everyone's surprise, when uh, they finally figured out how to tell the age of these fish, um, then they discovered that a fish maybe only two feet long uh, was a hundred years old or a hundred and twenty years old. Um, and it, if you've got that kind of amazing creature and you're trying to fish it, well, it takes a long time to replace that two-foot fish. So the amount of fishing pressure that they can 
withstand in order to be sort of a sustainable hunted population is a lot less than anybody anybody thought. I want to bring Rose George back into the conversation here because uh, now I think it is sort of time to talk about the kind of pressure that we put on some of this amazing sea life. Rose George, I know one thing that you got interested in on these uh, vast container ships is acoustic pollution. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, other kinds of pollution, but let's let's talk about noise because I think it's also something Steve Pol- Stephen Palumbi is interested in as well. What did you learn about the noise these enormous machines make? Well, I didn't actually think about that when I was on board the ship. It was only later when I read um, a book called The Urban Whale, which I highly recommend. Um, I think it's gripping. Um, it's, which is about the North Atlantic right whale, which is one of the most endangered creatures uh, creatures on, on, in the world. And um, I started reading about this, and, and after that I went to Cape Cod, to Provincetown, and, and I hung out with some researchers who are looking into acoustic pollution and I learned that ship propellers are not good news for ocean creatures and as Stephen mentioned earlier there's no light I think it's beyond 200 meters he may correct me um, when you go underwater so uh, animals um, creatures in the ocean often communicate by sound and the trouble with ship propellers and the trouble with some whales for example is that they often are on the same frequency or similar frequencies so we're now in a situation where I think some humpback whales, their acoustic habitat has been reduced dramatically and, and alarmingly, sometimes by up to 90%. And there's a lot of really interesting research being in, done into what kind of stresses this noise pollution underwater is putting on a, a very, very vulnerable population such as that of the North Atlantic right whale, which is already isn't breeding enough. So, um, so I was looking into that and it, it's, it's not very good news. Uh, Stephen Palumi, did you want to amplify? I guess that's a, a bad word to use, uh, that, whole, <laughs> that whole question. Um, sure. Uh, first, Rose, it's, it's, uh, it's a pleasure to, to speak, speak with you. Likewise. Um, and I just you know, like to, to mention that you know, when you're sailing on the top of the ocean, whether it's a container ship or a sailboat or whatever, the, the majesty of the ocean all around is just, just incredible. And uh, when you're looking out of the ocean looking a little bit deeper and seeing the creatures that actually inhabit it just it just is mind-numbingly amazing the kinds of ways they live their lives and um, what Rose is saying is absolutely true the acoustic world of whales has shrunk down enormously but just try to imagine what it was like before all those propellers here whales moving up and down the coast they're migrating with their 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 relatives and um, they can hear one another for not just a mile or two but ten miles and up to up to tens or hundreds of miles so Normally, when a whale would be migrating, it would have a, a sonic map in its head of, of who was around it at all times. And then with noise pollution, um, they can't hear it anymore. It would be like driving along the highway with a sack over your head. You just cannot understand what your environment is like you used to. Um, Stephen Palumbi, one of the things that comes out in your book is this delicate balance of highly interactive organisms. Uh, and and uh, you can pick your favorite example, I mean, but whether it's uh, scallops on the Carolina coast or, or otters uh, on the other coast, uh, you, you mess with one group, with one biological organism, you affect this incredible chain of life that we sort of know is there, but, but, but don't quite understand in, until we begin to fiddle with it. Yeah, and that chain of life is exactly the right way, right way to put it. Um, and when we when we fish enormously hard on one or, or two things, what we tend to do is is break that chain of life. 
And by breaking that chain of life, it, you sort of change how the ocean functions as an ecosystem. Uh, it, it isn't that we can't fish, uh, because we can. We just cannot overfish uh, and, and break those chains. Um, one of the uh, sort of examples that we use in the book is the, the strange tale of shark finning all around the world, taking out the, the sharks in and off the coast of North Carolina. Well, those sharks normally ate uh, skates that lived in the bays there. And without the sharks, the skate populations shot up. Well, what do skates eat? Skates eat scallops. And with a huge skate population, then the scallop population declined. So the, the chain of life was um, scallops eaten by skates, eaten by sharks. And by taking out the sharks, the secondary effect was the scallop fishing in North Carolina collapsed for years and years. Uh, there's another chain. Of course, it's the chain of things that we do. Uh, that have effects. And obviously, we're all we're very aware of climate change right now. And Stephen Palumbi has been looking a lot at what happens to coral uh, off the coast of American Samoa when you add one or two degrees uh, to that system. Uh, but Rose George, I want to go to you on this first, because one of the other things that we haven't said about those, these enormous vessels is that they, although they're a very efficient way to move goods around, they really pollute a lot, really, uh, really a lot. What was the, uh, I, I think you cite an equivalence between them and, and uh, X number of cars, but I can't remember what the uh, what the equivalence was. Well, there was a calculation done a, a couple of years ago which p- said that the 15 largest ships were equivalent to the pollution of all the cars in the world. Um, I think that's out of date now because the, the largest ships now, um, these things called triple E's, which carry 18,000 boxes or containers, they are much more efficient. So that would have to be looked at. But certainly, if you look at shipping, Although it is the most environmentally friendly method of mass transport compared to aviation um, or trucking by far, by a very, very long way, the trouble is that there's so much shipping, there's 100,000 vessels on the sea, that they still it's not benign. It's still contributing up to um, 4% of global emissions, which is on a par with aviation. It's also on a par with um, somewhere near Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, if you put countries together on a list of emitting countries. So it's um, it's something that needs to be addressed. And the good news is that it is being talked about a lot now in shipping. But the problem is that most ships on the high seas use something called bunker fuel, which is was described to me by someone in the tanker industry as the dregs of the refinery. So it's really, really, really polluting stuff. I mean, if you solidified it, you could easily walk on it. Mm. Um, and they do that because it's cheap. And um, even though fuel is is very expensive these days, it's still the cheapest expensive fuel you can get. And so if if shipping is going to have to confront looking for an alternative, looking for something with less sulfur content, with fewer partic- dangerous particles and particulates, then it's it's a huge question. It's really occupying the minds of everybody in the shipping industry at the moment. All right, we're going to grab a quick break here. Um, Stephen Palumbi, uh, his book is just absolutely amazing, and and we just scratched the surface uh, of what's down there. And and the, I mean, if you think giant squids are interesting, and they're in there, uh, read the book. It, you're going to find uh, all kinds of things that you didn't know existed. But we have to move on. Uh, we're going to keep Rose George with us. We'll come back after this. In the shade, we would be warm 
storm in our little hideaway beneath the waves. All of them are born male. The largest and most dominant male turns into a female. The next largest develops testes and fertilizes the eggs laid by the female. If the female dies, the fertile male who is number two takes her place, metamorphosing into a female. Huh. The Kardashians are so weird. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Anna Novak and Tess Aronson. The part of Bill Curry was played by Marlon Brando. Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. Katie Talarski is our executive producer. For show pages, articles, and audio of the Faith Middleton Show staff singing What Shall We Do with the Sailor Who's Had Five Fresh Cranberry Ginger Vanilla Margaritas, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, a New Yorker cartoon show that's very different from the five other New Yorker cartoon shows being aired this week. And now... Back to Colin. Let me squeeze in one more announcement because I have to keep reminding you. On April 9th, which is a Wednesday, we'll be at Watkinson School at 7 p.m. for a show called Whatever Happened to the Field of Dreams or How Do We Get Back to the Field of Dreams or something like that. Uh, it's about sort of the way that greed, hyper-competitiveness, aggression, violence uh, at the top levels of sports filters down into the sports that we play, the sports that our children play. Uh, we're going to be looking at both, uh, both what happens uh, at the very top of that pyramid, but also what happens at the base where most of us live. Uh, Jeff Jacobs, the wonderful sports columnist for the Hartford Current, will be with us, as will Coach Reggie Hatchett, uh, who's uh, led Weaver uh, to an amazing season this year in basketball, also runs a youth basketball program. We'll be talking to uh, a longtime youth uh, coach, a youth soccer coach, whose daughter uh, sustained a, seri- a serious injury while uh, playing youth sports, but he's still coaching. Um, we have... Uh, an amazing panel. Also somebody from the Corey Stringer Institute, which uh, does research into sports injuries and deaths from sports. So uh, you're, it's open to you. We'd love for you to come. I think you have to call Watkinson School or go to watkinson.org and order your ticket. Uh, we'll be also turning it into some kind of radio show that night, so you'll be able to hear see our wonderful team here at work. Uh, do join us for that at Watkinson um, and go on their website and find out more about it. All right. Uh, right now we're talking about the sea, the ocean. This is uh, was Betsy Kaplan's idea, uh, and it's turned out to be a very, very interesting idea. Rose George is with us. She's a journalist and the author of several books, including The Big Necessity. We will be doing an entire show uh, about that at some point, assuming she's willing to come back. 90% of everything uh, inside shipping, the invisible industry that puts clothes on your back, gas in your car, food on your plate. Um, we're um, also going to talk right now, uh, and this will sort of fit very well into some of the things that Rose writes about. We're going to talk to Charles Moore. He's captain of the oceanographic research vessel, vessel Ag. Agu, Agu, oh, I can't even say it. Alguita, the founder of, actually, you say it. I'm pronouncing it the wrong way, aren't I? Yeah, uh, the, the Spanish for kelp is alga, and we're a little kelp plant. We're alguita, and our research foundation is algolita. All right, and he's the author of Plastic Ocean. So this is about this enormous garbage patch that exists uh, out in the ocean. Um I, it's probably somewhere located in, in people's minds a little bit, but Charles Moore, give us a sense uh, of the size of this thing. Well, uh, you can get a, a, a sense of it if you've been following the news by thinking about uh, one of the other uh, garbage patches on Earth, which is in the Indian Ocean, which is confounding the search for the uh, missing aircraft. Uh, these things are so huge that uh, you you can't really... Uh, describe them as a patch. Uh, the garbage patch is a valuable moniker when, you know, getting people to think about a place, but 
and the ocean, you know, it's so much larger than any conceivable patch of anything that it really doesn't apply. This is millions of square miles, and it's got an average of, say, 800,000 small pieces of plastic per square kilometer, and uh, maybe one or two larger objects per square kilometer. So when you're looking for something specific, it, it's, it's very, very difficult. Um, Rose George, uh, you're familiar with this, and, and I'm wondering if we know uh, how, how many containers or how often containers fall off boats and, and contribute to this problem. I'm assuming it didn't just happen to Robert Redford with the box full of children's shoes. Um, we don't know. There are figures. There is a figure that people use quite commonly, which is 10,000 containers fall off every year, which is to me, suspiciously rounded as a figure. Um, the World Shipping Council says it's about 300 every year, but we don't know. But if you talk to um, yachters or, or leisure sailors, people, you know, the real day Robert Redfords, they'll, they'll quite commonly have come across containers or seen them. And they are, I mean, they do contribute. They, they can break open when they sink, but they're also a hazard to yachts and boats because they tend to float just underneath the surface of the water so you can't often see them uh, but yeah they're a mystery it's a mystery how many fall off um charles moore where do, do, do we know where most of this plastic comes from does it come from cruise ships does it get washed into the sea from our own garbage stream what, what's in these enormous patches uh there are no guiltless parties in the pollution of the ocean by our persistent waste which is largely plastic uh, everyone contributes to it uh, because even the smallest fibers from our garments contribute to it. Uh, when you wash a polyester garment, thousands of fibers uh, from that garment, uh, which are persistent plastics, go out in the rinse water. So they're found in invertebrates throughout the globe. So we're all polluting the ocean. Uh, larger objects typically come from fisheries and aquaculture operations, but also from tsunamis and uh, storms that break uh, coastal structures apart and send them out into these highways that lead to these gyres that accumulate the debris. Now, um, these gyres are not merely uh, eyesores. Um, they're serious problems biologically, right? They, they cause uh, ill health, uh, malnutrition, and death, I'm assuming, to, to the sea creatures who are out there. Uh, the plastic uh, that's floating in the ocean is not simply... Um, innocently floating around, it's sponging up all of our industrial pollutants uh, that have an oily uh, aspect to them because it's lipophilic, oil-loving. Plastic is an open polymer matrix that's, as a matter of fact, if you have an oil spill, you use a polypropylene or a polyethylene a rag to mop up the oil. It separates oil from water. It'll preferentially suck up oil and leave, leave the water. So, uh, uh, plastics are used to clean up oil spills, that, but in a passive sense, they're cleaning up the ocean uh, uh, of its pollutant load, but thereby transferring into the food web because all these plastics break down through photodegradation into bite-sized bits, and there's no trophic level, meaning any chain that has not now been documented to be consuming these polluted, what I call poison pills. Um, the uh, so and obviously that stuff also comes back to us as food too. Not that uh, we don't deserve it, but uh, but it does. Um, you know, uh, Rose George, as we're talking about all this, I mean, the the irony obviously here is that 
um, a lot of the stuff that winds up in these gyres is stuff that was shipped to us in boats in the first place, and we turned it in one way or another into waste, uh, and it gets back in the ocean that way. As you looked at this, talk about a chain, uh, talk about a web, uh, as you just looked at this web of material, is it some kind of powerful argument for for a more sustainable lifestyle, for, for less stuff and stuff that's maybe produced a little closer to home? Yeah, totally. Yes, it absolutely is. We definitely have to confront the stuff, just the mountains and mountains of stuff that, that we have to make a difference between need and require and want. We have to question exactly, you know, traveling on a container ship. It, it's ironic that you're, when you're out at sea on the ocean, I mean, I absolutely loved being on my ship. I loved going out on deck and just being there in the middle of all that immensity. But it's an isolating place, but you are actually surrounded uh, in all those boxes by immense amounts of stuff and and you start to question because you can't get access to any of it you can't go shopping you can't on on a ship you can't even get television you can't have the internet you can't phone home not easily and you're actually more removed from modern society and all its trappings than ever before so ironically although you're surrounded by it in 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 all those containers you start to question of how much of it you actually need how much you miss and the answer my my answer is not very much all right, that's Rose George. Her book is 90% of Everything. Uh, Charles Moore, uh, his book is Plastic Ocean. Charles Moore, I've only got 30 seconds, but in 30 seconds, uh, I give you the power to change one thing that might ameliorate this problem. What would you change in 30 seconds? I'd change the economic paradigm that we live under. Uh, the 11th commandment is not thou shalt grow the economy, but it's taken as such. No politician can be elected on a slow growth or no growth platform. So until we have a steady state economy that has fair distribution of resources and, as the previous speaker said, a rational distribution of uh, resources based on true needs, uh, we haven't got a chance to uh, solve this problem. All right. Uh, Charles Moore, thanks so much. Thanks also to Rose George. She'll be back, assuming we didn't scare her away, uh, at some point to do a, a whole show about the big necessity, which is what comes out of you. Just you and me And me and the sea Just you Just you and me And me and the sea Why are fish so smart? Craig, I don't care. Because they're always in schools. Ugh. How do you tune a fish? What does that even mean? With a sea scale. I hate you. I went to a sea turtle's party last night. Had a shell of a good time. Okay, show's over. 